You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Welcome to episode 72 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm taking a look at The Nom issue number 64, which is the final part of a three-parter that that stars Speed and Ice, two characters who appeared in earlier storylines. This also marks the point where after this episode, we have 20 issues left of the book and a little more than 25 episodes of this podcast series to go. This episode takes place in May of 1971, so I'm going to be taking a look at April and May of 71 for the historical context, which is why we have Joy to the World by Three Dog Night, a song that is easily one of the band's most notable songs, especially for its opening line, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. It was written by Hoyt Axton and spent six weeks on the top of the Billboard Hot 100 in April and May of 1971. The band, it should be noted, thought it was one of the more silly songs, although it was a huge success. It's also of note that Axton's mother, May, had written Heartbreak Hotel for Elvis Presley, and the success of Joy to the World made it to the only mother and son duo to ever have number one singles in the rock era. Our story is called Duty Elsewhere. It features a cover by Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti, which shows three soldiers standing on piles of skulls. Two are silhouetted in the background, and one we can see is holding up what looks like to be an Uzi, as well as the pin and flag for the 18th hole of a golf course. And there is a caption box that says, The pros shoot three under par. It's a decent cover, and the figures are not as exaggerated as Quesada's work would be as he got more popular. Inside our creative team is Chuck Dixon, writer Wayne Van Sant, penciler, Art Nichols and Tim Tui inkers, Phil Felix letters, Ed Lasser Larry and Kevin Tinsley color, Don Daly editor, Tom DeFalco was the editor in chief, and according to Mike's Amazing World, this book came out on November 26, 1991, and it has a January of 1992 cover date. We open in May of 1971. It's movie night on the base. The Montagnards are enjoying the film, which is a shoot 'em up western, and some of the GIs are complaining about their hooting and hollering. After it ends, Speed, Ice, and Little Min head out and talk about what they're going to do with the three days of leave they have coming up. Speed says that he's headed to Da Nang to give Minky the money that Doggy had saved for her. Ice said that's stupid, especially since since she was really only ever in it for the money, and Doggy had some ridiculous fantasy about settling down and marrying her. After a short hop on a C-130 to Da Nang, they head to the bank to get money, which is a little over $3,000. They head to the Brittany to find her, and after talking to the bartender and another girl at the bar, they find out that she has been arrested by the local military police. 
They head over there, and the person working the desk tries to delay them. He asks if they play golf and says something about how a country club charges five grand a year to belong, which is a not-so-subtle hint that it's going to take five grand to get Minky released. Ice tells them that the only thing they can really do at this point is send that money home to Doggy's parents and forget the whole thing. Speed wants to keep his promise to Doggy, and Little Min agrees, much to Ice's chagrin. Back in prison, the officer we saw earlier works on his putting and talks to Minky about how she's friends with the Americans, and she says that she was going to be married to one. This is interesting to him, as he would like to go to America, and he also thinks he can get some money out of them for her. Speed, Ice, and Little Min relax in a hotel room, and Speed gives Ice $2,000. His own $2,000. It was a bonus that he got for re-upping. Ice throws him against the wall, saying he's stupid. He had 30 days left, and then was out of there. And he can't act all humanitarian, and has to realize that Doggy is dead. Ice says that he's been there for five years, and he knows that his responsibility is to the living, not the dead. They call over to the MP office, and Ice says that he wants some golfing lessons. The officer says that it'll be expensive, and he'll send his driver over. Ice, and only Ice, gets into the limo. One of the MP pulls a gun on him and tells him the price is doubled. It's now $10,000. Ice tosses the envelope of money at him, cold cocks him and the driver, causing the car to hit a telephone pole. Ice gets out unharmed and walks away. He gets back to the hotel and tells the guys that the deal was altered. Now he's mad. He goes to the front desk and asks the woman, whom he refers to as Mama, has the box he left there a few months ago. Is it still there? The box is full of Uzis that he got from an Israeli, and they're going to mount a rescue mission. The officer, Captain Tran, is obviously making money on the black market, and that's where they find him. They kidnap him and they hold him in one of the warehouses he's using to hold all of his black market goods. He sneers at them, talking about how he does what he can and he says to make the best of his opportunities. Min gets upset and punches him, screaming that Tran is a coward and Vietnam is not a land of cowards. Tran's MPs show up with Minky, who has been terribly beaten. They get into their car with Ice holding the Uzi to Tran's head, and as they drive away, Minky asks about Doggy. Speed tells her that Doggy is dead. She begins crying about how Doggy is dead and that her brother is dead as well. Trans explains that her brother died of tuberculosis in prison, but Minky yells that he is a liar and attacks him. Ice tries to control the wheel, and Minky grabs his Uzi and blows Trans' head off. Some of Trans' men stop the car, and Ice gets out, pointing a gun at them. One of the fellow officers, Trans' nephew, points this gun at Ice, and they begin negotiations. The MPs can walk away and pretend that Tran was simply killed by a VC terrorist. His nephew wants to know why he would do that, and Ice explains how, well, the nephew is the next in line for this whole black market operation. It works. Speed tells Ice that he's earned his name. Later, at Minky's apartment, Speed gives her the money. She says that he really did love her, and that Doggy was really going to take her home. Speed says that she was the last thing that Doggy talked about, and the money should set her up. She says that she can't have what she really wanted because there's not enough money to get her there. Speed says, yeah, I did what I promised I'd do. You're on your own. Don't bother to thank me, Minky. I wouldn't want you to choke on the words. He leaves the apartment and she throws the money and then drops to the floor. 
What has been happening with a lot of Chuck Dixon's stories is that the endings are about how harsh this war is and how the idea that a number of soldiers may have had of brotherhood, of doing the greater good, were not always applicable. With Joe Hallen, we had seen a man basically be destroyed by his temper and his sticking to the idea of passion for his brothers. With Richie and the POW storyline, we see how much cruelty could exist as a part of the war. And finally, here, we see how there were so many who were taking advantage of the situation and how someone who should have been experienced but was ultimately naive was also taken advantage of. You hate to say it, but Speed is way too trusting and you think that someone who had this much experience would have known better and that he should probably have listened to Ice, who had been the grizzled voice of experience throughout his entire storyline. Furthermore, this is another look at how the time off the battlefield is more complex than many were willing to know or really admit. The battlefield itself isn't as conventional, and the mission that was carried out in the previous issues wasn't as conventional either. And while I don't know if other wars, say for instance World War II, saw situations like this where soldiers were befriending and romancing local women, and in some cases were promising to bring them home with them, there certainly are a number of stories like this about the Vietnam War. And in this case, the motivation of the woman involved is, well, I wouldn't say underhanded, because there's a sense that Minky actually may have cared about Doggy, but there's definitely a selfishness to her motivation. And I suppose that if Speed hadn't re-upped in order to get her out of jail, he would have offered to take her back to America himself, especially since he felt as if he were repaying a debt to his friend. But that wasn't the case. So his disappointment, and that's really what it is, is palpable at the end here, when she tells him that the money isn't enough, and he just walks out on her. They went through all of that, and did things that were a bit underhanded, and this is how they are repaid. Speaking of which, Dixon keeps the action to a minimum. This is not a big, dumb action movie here. So the mission is to rescue Minky from Tran. It's not so much an assault on the prison, it's a resolving of what's a basic extortion plot. Tran's trying to shake these people down for money that they don't have. Ice comes up with a way to turn that around on its enemy, ultimately relying on his own cynicism to more or less save the day. Granted, the day is not so much saved as the conflict is resolved, but what happens at the end is that he basically tells Tran's nephew that he knows the guy is amb as ambitious as wanting to make a buck as his uncle was, and that a shootout where they now stand will not only not solve anything, but it will get in the way of the ambition. The showdown is foreshadowed in the beginning of the issue by the movie that they're watching, which is The Wild Bunch. It's a Sam Peckinpah classic western, starring Wilden Holden and Ernest Borgnine. Funny enough, you have to know the movie a little bit to figure this out, because the only clues to this are the fact that William Holden is directly mentioned, and the movie frame in the second page shows someone in a western-style outfit firing a Browning M1917 machine gun, which is a weapon that features in the movie's climax. And the movie figures into this because Holden and company go down fighting, which suggests a quite masculine sense of honor, something that Speed and later on Little Min hold to as they try and make this up to Doggy. But while Vietnam did have a very disorganized feel to it in many ways, at least as we've seen during this entire series, it wasn't the Wild West as portrayed in some movies. Not all the heroes are honorable, and as Ice tells Speed, the idea of a, quote, brotherhood of war can it sometimes be total bull. 
But I don't think that we should walk away from this only agreeing with Ice's point of view or feel that Speed did something wrong in trying to make sure that Doggy's final wishes were carried out. It's more complicated than that. And I think that Dixon shows that balance well. After all, Ice does carry out his rescue mission of sorts, despite how much he obviously doesn't want to. And going all the way back to when Doug Murray was writing the character, we see that there is still a more compassionate man beneath what has become a very cynical attitude. The artwork is still good. The change in inkers isn't too much of an issue, although we're back to where the coloring is slightly off on ice. Two issues ago, his hair was colored white. Last issue, his hair was blonde. This issue is back to white again. In this case, it's another colorist other than Phil Felix doing the coloring. But I would probably put the blame on this for the editors. Don Daly had been editing this particular title for a while, and this is around the time when Tim Tui takes over as assistant editor from Kevin Kobasik, who had just left. Perhaps it's his error, it, and it's really a nitpick, to be honest. I rarely have much else to say about the artwork in the book, because it's continually, continually solid and has been pretty consistent since we started all the way back in issue number one. And that'll do it for the issue. When I get back, I'll be talking about April and May of 1971. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Dr. Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? So April 1971 and May 1971 are not as eventful as the last couple of months, but we do have a few things happen mainly with regard to the anti-war movement. On April 1st, 1971, President Nixon orders Lieutenant William Cowley, who had been in charge of the unit that had conducted the My Lai Massacre and had been convicted in previous month, released pending his appeal. On April 8th, a right-wing coup attempt is exposed in Laos. On April 19th, Vietnam Veterans Against the War begin a week of nationwide protests. This is an organization that began in 1967 and at its height during the 1960s had nearly 25,000 members. It was one of the most influential anti-war organizations during the war, and the protests held during this week were nicknamed Operation Dewey Canyon 3, a name inspired by the name of two operations by the United States in which they invaded Laos. The protests took place throughout Washington, D.C. as protesting veterans held a ceremony at the gates of Arlington National Cemetery and protested outside of major government buildings such as the Pentagon, the U.S. Capitol, and the Supreme Court. Perhaps one of the most famous parts of the protest is decorated veteran and future United States Senator from Massachusetts, 2004 Democratic presidential candidate, and as this recording, current Secretary of State John Kerry testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for two hours on April 22nd. Each day to facilitate the process by which the United States washes her hands of Vietnam, someone has to give up his life. 
so that the United States doesn't have to admit something that the entire world already knows, so that we can't say that we've made a mistake. Someone has to die so that President Nixon won't be, and these are his words, the first president to lose a war. And we are asking Americans to think about that. Because how do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? We are here to ask, and we're here to ask vehemently, where are the leaders of our country? Where is the leadership? We're here to ask where are McNamara, Barstow, Bundy, Gilpatrick, and so many others? Where are they now that we, the men whom they sent off to war, have returned? These are commanders who have deserted their troops. And there is no more serious crime in the law of war. The Army says they never leave their wounded. The Marines say they never leave even their dead. These men have left all the casualties and retreated behind a pious shield of public rectitude. They've left the real stuff of their reputations bleaching behind them in the sun in this country. And finally, this administration has done us the ultimate dishonor. They have attempted to disown us and the sacrifices we made for this country. In their blindness and fear, they have tried to deny that we are veterans or that we served in Nam. We do not need their testimony. Our own scars and stumps of limbs are witness enough for others and for ourselves we wish that a merciful God could wipe away our own memories of that service as easily as this administration has wiped their memories of us. But all that they have done and all that they can do by this denial is to make more clear than ever our own determination to undertake one last mission, to search out and destroy the last vestige of this barbaric war, to pacify our own hearts to conquer the hate and fear that have driven this country these last 10 years and more. And more. And so when 30 years from now our brothers go down the street without a leg, without an arm or a face, and small boys ask why, we will be able to say Vietnam and not mean a desert, not a filthy obscene memory, but mean instead the place where America finally turned, and where soldiers like us helped it in the turning. Thank you. The protests conclude on April 23rd. According to Wikipedia, on Friday, April 23rd, more than 800 veterans individually tossed their medals, ribbons, discharge papers, and other war mementos on the steps of the United States Capitol, rejecting the Vietnam War and the significance of those awards. Several hearings in Congress were held that week regarding atrocities committed in Vietnam and the United States media's inaccurate coverage of the war. There were also hearings on proposals to end the United States for participation in the war. The vets planted a tree on the mall as part of a ceremony symbolizing the veterans' wish to preserve life and the environment. Kerry would then take place in the Washington Peace March on April 24th, wherein 200,000 people marched on Washington to protest the war. Here's the CBS News report. Good evening. Marching behind flags and banners and picket signs demanding peace now, at least 200,000 anti-war protesters jammed the streets of Washington today in what was probably the biggest peace demonstration to be held since they began six years ago. 
As usual, there were conflicting reports over the size of the crowd. Police estimated 200,000, but an organizer of the demonstration claimed half a million. Despite the huge crowd, no Nixon administration official nor any of the Democratic presidential contenders spoke at the rally or appeared on the Capitol Hill platform. The most prominent elected official to speak was Democratic Senator Hartke of Indiana. Our report on the demonstration begins with Bruce Martin. The rally was peaceful as promised and large as its organizers hoped. Nobody really knows how many people filled these Capitol grounds spilling back down Pennsylvania Avenue, but speakers on this platform have been calling it the largest demonstration in this city's history. And some veteran demonstration watchers edging through the crowd saw other differences. More older people, one said, it's not all the youth culture. There were people in union hats. The sponsoring group had listed more union officials and more black organizations too, though most of the faces in the crowd were white. The flags flew, American and Viet Cong, and at least two kites took advantage of the gusting winds. A lot of people just walked here this spring day, but many did march, more than could fit onto the Capitol grounds. They started from the ellipse at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, Bob Schieffer reports. They came in such numbers that the march spilled onto Pennsylvania Avenue an hour ahead of schedule. An organizer said we had to start the march early, there was just no place to put all those people. Like those who have marched up Pennsylvania Avenue before to protest the war, many were young, many were white. Some said they were ex-GIs, a few said they were still GIs on active duty. Their lines, 20 and 30 abreast, stretched from the White House to Capitol Hill for most of the afternoon. A splinter group of several hundred Chicanos, U.S.-born Arabs, some blacks and a few others, calling themselves the Third World Task Force, joined the main march after a separate demonstration. Together, they marched peacefully to the Capitol, singing and chanting for an end of the war. Bob Schieffer, CBS News. Once here, the crowd heard speeches, of course, from some old familiar faces like Indiana Senator Vance Hartke, and from some new ones like John Kerry, one of the coordinators of this past week's anti-war protest by Vietnam veterans. What is important is not just that we are here today, because we've been here before, you and I. We've been here before and we've been other places. And what we have to decide is that we're going to keep coming back until this war ends. And we don't come back only on a day like today, but we come back on the day that they vote. And we tell these men that if they don't end the war, then we will alter the basic structure of this country by taking them to task at the polls. And we will not be silent until they do do this and until our children can look at this country with hope, with hope for what it will be and not despair for what it is. The only way that we can renew our commitment to mankind is to get out now. The president says he cannot even set a date for withdrawal because in doing so, he would be giving those that he calls the enemy valuable information to use against our remaining troops. Well, Mr. Nixon, we have a plan. We have a plan for you. 
We have a plan for you to protect our troops. Announce a date for withdrawal. Accept a ceasefire and get them out now. And they heard music, some new songs with tougher anti-war lyrics than those of years past, and some old songs. John Denver sang one of those. Last night I had the strangest dream I never dreamed before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. Sing it again. Last April 20th, Cambodian Prime Minister Lon Nol resigns but remains effectively in power until the next elections. On April 29th, 1971, total American deaths in Vietnam surpass 45,000. On April 30th, in 1971, the last United States Marine combat units depart Vietnam. From May 3rd through the 5th, a mass arrest of 12,000 protesters occurs in Washington. These are known as the May Day protests. They were organized by some of the more aggressive contingents of the anti-war movement. And this was not as massive nor as peaceful as the protest that was taking place back in late April. There were several clashes between protesters and police as the government mobilized a number of police and National Guardsmen to disrupt the protests. Tear gas was fired on the third day as a way to disperse the crowd, and afterwards, even though 12,000 were arrested, only 79 were ever convicted of any charges. The protest organizers were charged with conspiracy, but those charges were dropped as well. According to Wikipedia, the ACLU pursued a class action lawsuit brought by thousands of detained prisoners and ultimately the United States Congress, recognizing the illegal nature of the arrests, agreeing to pay a settlement to those arrested, and it made them some of the only citizens in United States history to receive financial compensation for violation of their constitutional right of free assembly. Also, um, Richard Helms, who was the Central Intelligence Agency director at the time, said, quote, it was obviously viewed by everybody in the administration, particularly with all the arrests and the howling about civil rights and human rights and all the rest of it, as a very damaging kind of event. I don't think there was any doubt about that. And that does it for historical context. Let's close out by looking at letters and ads. Incoming this month. Before we get to the letters, we have Uncle Stan wants you to write in with your thoughts, feelings, questions, like, dislike, and suggestions and demands. We know there's a loyal core of NOM readers out there, and now we want to see a loyal core of incoming writers. Ask not what this comic can send to you, but what you can send to this comic. Maybe they weren't as getting as many letters as they used to, because these letter pages, as you remember, back in the first, especially during Doug Murray's run, these were hot. They were... And not in an American comics way. I mean, there was some really good stuff in here. Just a few more comments on the death of Joe Howland. 
Sergeant Staff Sergeant Robert Green of Whitmore Lake, Michigan, writes in saying he's writing in a tent on a cot from the Middle East. He wants to say that issue four is a great beginning to death, death of Joe Hallen. The realism in your stories has also always given me insight. I can relate to things missed at home, and I think it's tragic the Vietnam vets were treated so poorly, so poorly, in fact, that some preferred the Dom to home. Now I find our future return from home Operation Desert Storm paid by our fellow service members of two decades ago. The public seems to have learned it is more supportive. Thank you to all the Vietnam vets. Bill Hine of Winfield, Illinois, writes in. He says the death of Joe Hallen exactly what it was what the title needed. It's some new life. Doug Murray was a fine writer, but he seemed to be burned out as of late. Um, it was the story was excellent um, of every respect. He liked Joe Hallen himself. He was smart. He was a good fighter, but he didn't follow orders. He was no goody goody. The plot was really good. He said, perhaps the thing I liked most was the ending. You chose to have Hallen die a metaphorical death as opposed to the real death. You didn't worry about some 11 year old reading the title and then the ending becoming totally confused. It's a good thing. Few Marvel comics would take this chance. You did and it worked well. As I said it before, it was a great miniseries within a series, a set of a great set of Andy Kubert covers really topped it off. At last, I'm finally looking to the neck toward the next nom issues. Andrew M. Shaw, Shaw care, care of Big Bobs in Milford, Connecticut, says that boredom set in for him around nom 24, so I took a breather from the nom for a while. Number 60 made its way to my hands on the 26th of August. Now I can't wait for number 61. The issue was so good. Chuck Dixon's writer writing never ceases to impress me while Wayne and Kim's work set an impressive tone for the whole disturbing tale. Bravo boss boys. I'm back on the front line with you and kill that bleep Ramnerain slowly. They say glad to have you back Andrew and now that you're here we'd like to ask you and every non reader to share the book and enjoy with, with anyone else you would like you think would like it. Our best publicity is word of mouth. So Clearly, sales are not what they used to be, um, and I'm sure that the, I, there's a Punisher story coming up soon. By the way, too. Peter Zabel's address was held by withheld by request. It says suggestions for the nom: one, keep having Andy Kubert do the covers; two, do more issues on or with new guys rotating into units; three, show what Ancient Orange did to our troops and their troops; four, a crossover about the use of tunnels and the VC having our tunnel our supplies more in. Tense than the tunnel rat. Five. I don't know what crossover has to do with that. Five. A special forces storyline, maybe two or three issues. Six. What about Tet? Seven. Another sniper article. Eight. A two-part story on finding and rating a PW camp. Well, how's that for service, Peter? We touched on points two, four, five, and seven in this and last issue. We did an issue on Tet as well as points one, three, and eight. Stay tuned. You will be pleased. Speaking of variety, see the box at the end of this page. And then finally, Art Morgan um, from Buffalo, New York, writes and he says, I'm 19 years old. I've been hooked on war comics for many years, and the nom is the only one that he collects because it's not childish and emotional. Uh, since it, the first issues, I thought it would I thought it would be cool to make a, a nom Marvel Universe. After your final issue, I hope not for a while, run as many issues as it takes to, to buy the soldier's name rank and what he did in the nom and what he's doing fictionally today. Oh, so like an Ohat move for the Nam. I get it. Okay, did he die in Nam? Was he committed to the mental institution? Did he commit suicide back in the world? Or just an average American citizen of the city or, con- or country land? Actually, I like that idea. Or I like I like the idea of a whatever happened to these people sort of catch-up issue or, 
yeah, or like a who's who or a hot move type of, of thing. I think, um, or something along the lines of what GI Joe did with the Order of Battle, or or something. You know, tell these people stories, extend these people's stories. That's a that that is a cool idea. Uh, I write to find out if you've already thought of it. If you didn't, see how other respond people respond. They say the Nam Universe, a eh? not a bad idea. Well, the forums open to the public now. Let the comments begin. And we're not sure what Pokolo and Light's first names were, Art. But you can bet they weren't Frank and Linus. There's one nom note. White mice is a derogatory term for ARVN police, military police. And before we get to the next issue box, which talks about how they're going to have Russ Heath do a special issue, there's a special editorial announcement. It's a three-day hanky in the nom office as Kevin Gabasik, the brain behind most of our cover designs since the beginning of the death of Joe Hallen, moves to a new editorial office. Editorial intern Tim Tui is sorry to see Kevin go, but not too sorry as Tim's our new assistant editor. Please join us in welcoming Tim as he shoulders the awesome production schedules of the last exit to editor's row, where the situation is always desperate but never serious. As for Kevin, he's getting bumped up to the credits box on page one as the penciler of issue 66. You've been enjoying this ultra-dynamic work for months. Now see what he can do when he gets paid for it. The Creep just happens to be one of our all-time favorite Chuck Dixon stories, and the whole thing sports a cover by founding father Michael Golden. But our next episode will feature issue 65. And before we get to that, I'll take a look at the ads. There's the Wolverine NES game from LJN. Joe DiMaggio autographed cards from Score. The Monster of a Good Time featuring the creepy kid with the feather hair and the Cosby sweater ad that we've seen so many times before. There's a Walden Books ad saying that this is where you can find all of your TSR products. And Walden Books was always great for comics and role-playing stuff. B. Dalton to a lesser extent, but a lot of people I know, and myself included, have great stories of going to Walden Books and finding stuff like this on the shelves in a way that we didn't expect. The illustration, by the way, is um, Gerald Brom, and it features a woman holding a sort of a battle staff and she has wings and a and a horn helmet and that sort of uh, bra armor that makes her breasts look like two balloons strapped to her front, as you do in fantasy illustration. Uh, the same Fleer Bass, a lot of same ads. An East Coast comic, uh, East Coast comics ad. More of the classic Marvel tees. Um, I had this Wolverine and Psylocke one. Um, really not a lot of new ads. Uh, there's a Tiger Electronics uh, LCD game for Wolverine and the X-Men, um, which I remember those games. It was like, you know, here's the guy, and then here's the guy. And it was they were really, really crude uh, games. And the same Dungeons & Dragons ads we've been seeing. So nothing that dynamic on the ads, but um, a lot of really good stuff in this issue. A lot of interesting historical context this time around, I hope. Uh, like I said, tune in next episode. We'll be taking a look at the issue number 65 of the knot. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. 
feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. Oh